0: Dear brown girls, welcome. I'm Dia. I'm Iza. Grab a cup of chai and join us for unfiltered conversations about the things aunties don't want us talking about.
1: Today we're finally doing the episode that Dia and I have been wanting to do for so long. Um, Mental health in the South Asian community. Dia and I were trying to hold off on having this conversation until... You know, we could have someone that knows what they're talking about, uh, um, maybe someone like maybe an expert. And we were kind of just mulling over the idea um, because really we complain about being tired constantly. So it's like, why are we so tired? And then it just so happened that we got really lucky.
0: A couple weeks ago, I think uh, one of our listeners who we have with us now reached out to us over email about wanting to just talk about mental health and wanting to be a part of the podcast Naturally, we were overjoyed. Like, so overjoyed. (laughs) Like, so excited. (laughs) Like, first, because we got an email.
1: (laughs) Seriously, guys, email us already. (laughs) We're tired of begging. (laughs) I know it's a dead medium, but still.
0: Okay, (laughs) so let me just introduce you to Nancy Ball. She's a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at the University of Ottawa, and she's just very passionate about mental health issues in the South Asian community.
1: Welcome, Nancy. Thank you,
2: guys. So yeah, I'm just like Dia said, I'm doing my PhD in clinical psychology and I'm in my sixth year now. So it's time to wrap things up. So for me, I, I, you know, I'm really personally motivated to pursue a career in clinical psychology. And that really is to increase South Asian representation in the mental health field and and really reducing the stigma around it. I know like for me, like when I first started my undergrad, that's when things kind of like shit really hit the fan at that point. Am I allowed
1: to swear? Yes, please do.
0: Maybe not the F word, although we've said it sometimes. <laughs> Just because Apple Podcast does not enjoy it, but you can oh, okay. feel free otherwise.
1: <laughs> we'll keep that on the
2: side. So yeah, I think for me, it was really at a point when I was in my undergrad, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and that's when things got really um, tough and there was you know you're ba- you're managing and this is something that I'm sure we're going to talk about more you're managing both your parents expectations of, of what they expect you to do as a appropriate program and you're also just trying to figure it out on your own of what you're able to do so at that time things got really tough I know that I had to see a counselor at that point. And I could remember not feeling understood at that time by that person, given the cultural differences, and that I felt like there was a lot to explain. Um, And that was really a point for me to kind of look around and and ask myself, like, who is there? Like, who can I really reach out to that is South Asian? And I couldn't really find really many people at that time. And that was like, oh, about 10 years ago. So it was a while back. Um, Things definitely have changed. But this is one of the reasons why that kind of motivated me to get into the program.
0: I think like that experience of not feeling understood is probably way more common than I would like to think it is. But I I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that it led you to this path where you can now give that experience to other South Asian women, South Asian men.
1: So I guess to like start off, we know this is a big problem, me- mental health issues, like mental health issues in general is a big problem across all populations. And I think It always has been. I think the difference is people are just more willing to talk about it now um, without so much stigma. But what kind of unique challenges are women in like first generation South Asian communities facing and why are mental health issues so rampant in that particular group in our culture?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, when I was doing just a bit more research on South Asian mental health, I saw that in 2018, India was declared like the most depressed country in the world. And it's almost to say, you know, you, you become curious, right? Of of why, what's contributing to the low mood in our in our folks, in our community, What's what's maintaining that mood. And I think I can sit down and think of many reasons why, unfortunately, but I think for us, first is just the silence. We don't talk about it. We don't actually have really the language to explain what we're going through. South Asians or the Eastern culture defines depression it's always like oh my head is hurt it's very like physical symptoms and for someone that doesn't really have any physical issues or conditions those are things to really pay attention to amongst our community that's to say is that we don't really have that language to, d- to describe depression like I'm really sad or like I'm really like down or you know uh, it's it's the language isn't there not necessarily because we don't actually have the words it's because we don't speak about it enough when we suffer with things we suppress it we love as brown people to talk about our diabetes. Like, I feel like everyone's like, oh, I have sugar, I have sugar. Like, we talk about that a lot, but like, I never hear anyone to say like, (laughs) that we're like really sad, right? So we have silence and then we just have stigma, right? It's, I hear it so many times and I would love to hear what, if you guys have experienced this, but I hear people saying that like, oh, She like if this person has depression or anxiety or whatever, it's like, oh, they're not strong enough or like, oh, they're weak or, or they're just faking it, you know, to get attention. That just contributes to the stigma right around mental health, that this is more of like a a sign of weakness as opposed to a condition, as opposed to something that needs to be taken seriously.
1: It's often coming from a place of love, which is the hardest part. So yeah, like I've personally dealt with a lot of mental health issues, um, anxiety being the worst of it. And I dealt with it alone for a long time. And then things got finally like bad enough that I had to take that step. And I shared it with my mother. And I only really did that because in the first three months of being on medication, I was just a volatile mess just while my body was adjusting. And so I felt the need to tell her because she was worried. And then she very lovingly was this like, Issa, you just have to be strong, and like power through these things. And it like broke my heart because I know that that's what she's done her entire life. Yeah, you hear just tough it
2: out. Yeah, I completely understand. And the way that I like to talk about it and to think about mental health in terms of destigmatizing it is always and I'm, and you may have heard this before, but comparing it to like a broken leg, a broken arm, people don't tell them to tough it out and just like deal with the broken you, you you're you encouraged, you're recommended, you're forced to like get get it checked out, right, get something, some sort of treatment put onto it, right, and that's the same, thing. like, why is that any different for a condition like depression or anxiety, where literally parts of your, our body is being affected, your cognition is being affected, you know, there's different, like, if you look at neuroimaging studies, there's, like, Parts of your brain, like the volumes of it are changing. So it, it is a physical condition. It's just health in general is what I'm trying to say is that whether it's a physical condition or a mental condition, it, all around, it's your health that's being impacted.
0: Like, it's also just really normal in brown culture to tough out for anything, right? Like, it's not just mental health. Like, if you're feeling ill, no, it's okay. Tough it out. Go to work. If you're struggling with school, no, it's okay. Tough it out. You'll make it to the end. Like, you just have to get into a good university, right? Like, that's just been our consistent mentality. And it's also very common immigrant mentality to, like... You have to tough it out because it's a hard world and we need to do that to make it work here. And so that mentality that applies to our general, the general way we manage our health just kind of gets even more amplified and exaggerated when it comes to mental health because of like the stigma, like you're saying, and the fact that people don't think it's a real thing.
1: I think it's part of the immigrant experience is like feeling like you weren't able to ask for help and it was all on you. And I think that kind of becomes a repetitive behavior and pattern and thinking that, starts applying to all aspects of your life, even when you are in a position where you can have, when you you can ask for help or you have support systems, you're not allowed to be weak when you're trying to make it. And even when when you have made it, you can't break that pattern anymore.
2: And I think what stems from that, of that
1: feeling of needing to, like, can't
2: ask for help, like, so not help seeking, that kind of thing. I think what stems from that is there's a set of norms kind of defined in our society, right? And when you don't adhere to those norms, you're it's more shameful. And when you do, it brings a lot of honor to your family. So one of the values, for example, is like high educational achievement. And that's a value that's very important in our community, right? So when you don't do that, it's it brings you a lot of shame. But when you do do that, it brings you a lot of pride and honor to the family. Whereas other cultures, predominantly the culture that we're in, so a Western culture, you don't really have that to, that, to the degree that we... Mm-hmm. That whole like shame, honor culture within the South Asian community can to some extent speak to why we're seeing our parents and our family and our community kind of acting in that way where it's so hard for them to ask for help because that would be such a sign of weakness and that would bring a lot of shame.
1: Again, one of the things that makes it so hard to break the patterns is that we're taught these behaviors so early on in our life. Um, so the, to the point that we internalize them and we don't really recognize necessarily the damage that it's doing to our mental health and just like our the ability to like live our lives to the fullest until we're adults trying to like carry on these behaviors and it just seems to get harder and harder. Absolutely. And I think, um, is it now like when you talk about
2: specifically for women, so the, added layer and this kind of contributes and adds on to the shame on their culture is that there's this term called iseth, right? Which means like your honor, essentially. Mm-hmm. And a lot of South Asian women feel more obligated to operate within this set of norms of honor. And that kind of can put your own personal needs and goals aside. And I think that kind of contributes to all of our tiredness. <laughs> And so that we need to change, we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on our behaviors, that we're mo- we're modifying our be- behavior so that we don't bring this shame or dishonor upon our family.
1: And that's what it is. It's like when you ha- when you say that you have like a mental health issue, it's not, it somehow isn't just about you trying to find help. It somehow becomes a reflection of your family and how they raised you or what kind of life they gave you. And that's where the shame honor thing comes in because suddenly your parents are like, feeling attacked because of the culture that they've been raised in and because of the society they're a part of where they feel like I've done something wrong and people are going to think I've done something wrong because my child is now saying that they're not okay and they need to like need, they need external help to be okay
0: yeah and how many times have you heard like when you complain about one thing or something else they're like oh I guess we failed you as parents <laughs> Mm-hmm. like I, like you're saying like, the language is so difficult to even express how you're feeling when you're when you're facing mental health issues but like when you try to kind of convey that to your parents it's almost like it gets translated into some kind of like failing or like a weakness and that, mm-hmm. that weakness stems from them and i think like kind of the crux of what we're trying to say is there's so much like normalization of bad unhealthy behavior and like there's so much language missing that often you kind of wish was taught to you as a child to express yourself like we learn so many different ways to talk to our parents but not how to talk to our parents about how we feel which sounds really sad when I say it out loud but it's like it's a little bit true I I think it applies to me I don't know how well it applies to everyone else but the the desire to have is that to like be strong kind of makes it hard to say what you're really really feeling and like and have that connection especially in the points of weakness which is really what where like your bonds become stronger
2: absolutely like my parents or especially my mom has only become more comfortable talking about mental health that i've like kind of pushed it on her you know like forced these words onto her that you know talk to her what validation is and what invalidation is because for a lot of us in our community we've been brought up with a lot of invalidation right like why are you crying like stop crying be tough like it's just it's a lot of invalidation that our parents didn't really maybe didn't even realize and so and I'm not sure if you guys feel the same way but you kind of feel well I feel a lot of guilt even now right where it's like you're stuck between appreciating and loving what your parents have done for you and at the same time hold some form of um, frustration anger sadness towards how they've made you feel
0: I think like that like I have that conflict every day and it's it's kind of a hard thing to live with because at some points you're angry at some points you I just be like a really obvious example like I am grateful to my parents every day that they gave me the life that I have right like I'm not I'm not really happy when they constantly tell me to be grateful <laughs> but I am grateful like most of the time but there's so much frustration around things that you know now I realize that would have made me healthier or stronger or things that I feel like are missing in our relationship. And I think things that are missing often stems from like that missing gap of language of understanding that comes from having these conversations. And like, maybe the fact that you were then empowered, Nancy, with like your education to have this conversation with your mom, like probably opened up a way of communication to her that she probably was
1: never taught the same way that like, maybe
0: I've never been taught it, right?
1: You hit the nail on the head when you said like, guilt that we're constantly dealing with because I think that honestly like looking back was primarily where like my anxiety started and then just snowballed because and like yes your our parents you know kind of routinely would like remind us of all the sacrifices they made but there's also all these like unspoken pressure and unspoken sacrifices that are held over your head Um, not because our parents are awful people or because they're actively trying to hurt us in any way but because so much was given up that they really don't want us to lose sight of what is important in their eyes, at least. Right. So that guilt can really snowball into this inability to be able to like function as a, for me anyway, as like a full human being because I was constantly like consumed by it. And then with that, like guilt and anxiety, sometimes there's anger because it's like, I, there wasn't a need for me to feel this way. You know, there could have been healthier ways to approach this, but then, A lot of it comes back to like being able to like, I think Nancy said this earlier, like forgive our parents for the mistakes they've made because there's, I mean, like intergenerational trauma, again, a big thing that people are recognizing more and talking more, um, not just in brown culture, but in other cultures. We know that like intergenerational trauma literally changes your DNA. Like it literally changes the physical aspect of your DNA and is carried on through generations. And so if I think about how hard of a time like our generation has talking about mental health, to think like the traumas, the unresolved traumas our parents are carrying around um, that they've passed on to us and the ones that their parents were carrying around and how long this has been going on for, which speaks to why it's so hard to break this cycle. Absolutely. yep, it's really hard to break the cycle. And
2: now we're having more and more resources that we can use to teach them at this point where we're able to. And I think it is that balanced approach, right? Like being able to appreciate what they what they've done and and say that out loud to them, and then say also ways in which things could have disrupted the relationship and things that could have been like for example with me, I think the more now that I talk to my mom, I think what I realized is that I needed validation from her like I needed validation to know that I wasn't this ungrateful daughter and that maybe some of her expectations were real, unrealistic, were a bit high, that maybe with more encouragement, she it would, throughout my life, we wouldn't feel so drifted apart. We wouldn't be so detached. And that's something that she's realizing now and is able to tell me, you know, like with the, with the resources that she had at that time, with the inability to talk about mental health for her too, it was for her, she didn't know that there was that, for for example encouragement and praise was a good thing for mm-hmm. a child it's always been like you know tough love is what's going to keep them straight and that's what's going to keep them reaching their goals like when i've done this type of talk before one of my feedback was like okay but people like some people need to be tough on their kids yeah and have you seen us like have you seen the brown people we're tough all the time like <sighs> there's no balance there's no flexibility right like i i don't remember really getting Praise and encouragement. I got like, okay, work harder. Okay, that's fine that you did this, that you graduated high school, that you graduated university. Okay, what's next? Like, that's cool. You got this done. What? And, and I think we just didn't have that. And the point is really to have more of a balance between self compassion and I wouldn't even want to call it tough love, but you know, just it, it. There is more flexibility that's needed than what we've gotten. And I think that's what at the end of the day when we're talking about um, ways to break the cycle, it really is to show and explain what the other things that our parents could do to help that doesn't only include like criticism, like what are some other things that you can do as forms of encouragement, as forms of praise, or just in forms of just validation and understanding that things are tough, that understanding that this program, although it's still an undergrad program or a college program, that it's still tough to do and, and get that encouragement.
0: One of the things that helped me, because I, I, it took me a long time to talk to my parents. Like, it, it was really hard for them to understand that my experience growing up in like a completely non-Brown community is totally different from their experience. It's so bizarre. Like, they, they're like, okay, we're gonna come to a completely different country, raise our kids here, put the same expectations that we had on us on them, and then expect it to be fine, even though like they're in a completely different space. I kept trying to explain to them. I was like, like you can't. Like, I was not validated by my community. Like my community was different than your community. All I had was my family that kind of fulfilled like that bubble that you felt was like that bubble of the culture that we want to preserve. And everywhere outside of it, I wasn't being validated. And the things that my parents were telling me was also not being validated. So trying to get my parents to understand that my experience is so different and even my comfort with my culture, my comfort with my religion, even the way that I talk, even the way that I speak with my language, like it's just, it's not at all similar to just their ways of thinking, their, their validated culture, their validated religion that they grew up with. And getting that kind of, it's like, it's not fully there, but like getting that connection, even to some parts of my experience has helped them to build empathy for me and kind of realize that their expectations are built on an experience that I've never had. And like that kind of empathy, like it's a long, long battle. It's so hard to get there. But I think that is one of like the cruxes that can like help with breaking that kind of cycle of trauma
1: and it's so nice that like I think all three of us have kind of spoken to the fact that like the stuff that we didn't get in our childhood we're now working to like address that with our parents and they're they're starting to make a shift like in my family like I have two younger sisters and I think my mom is raising them significantly differently than she raised me and she's told me that and it's hard for her to say it to me but she said there were just there were some things I just didn't understand when I was raising you and I understand better and I can see in the way that she is raising them the different the changes she's made. But as much as it's as great as it, it is that we're all like trying to make these changes as adults, the lack of validation that was our entire childhood meant that we were seeking it elsewhere. And I don't know, for you guys, for me, it was my teachers. My teachers loved me. I loved them. I was a huge (laughs) teacher's pet. And I just got all the validation that I wasn't getting anywhere else. I got from them. Um, But then eventually I stopped being in school. (laughs) I didn't have it anywhere. And that's when things got real hard. Yeah. I
0: think we also talked about in our like internalized racism episode, how we seek validation from white people and, I feel like it's also because it's it's easy to get it, right? Like, it's so much easier to get it from them than just to get it from the Brown community because of this tough love. And so why am I not going to go for, like, the easy target instead of, like, that summit that I have to climb to get, like, some appreciation from my parents?
2: And what's important is that this isn't even an easy target. This is a human need, right? Like, we need this validation. and And, like, it's because it's a symbol of, like, love right when you're getting valid it's like not even just love That's maybe to a stronger extent but just understanding and we as humans need to feel that we're understood right that we're a part of community that we're a part of something and for us growing up and with juggling both cultures we're trying to find some sort of support and just some sort of belongingness right and that can contribute so deeply to our to what we're struggling with now in terms of like our identity in terms of what do we actually value and what we don't value from the different cultures like I think now in my now I'm hitting my 30s like that's kind of what I'm looking like I'm trying to discover more and more of like what what do I approve of what is me in my India in my Indian culture or my South Asian culture and what do I identify with in the Western culture and I think I'm and I think it's it really is driven by a sense of like wanting to like belong somewhere like wanting to like and in in another way or the silver lining or a way to reframe it is like how lucky are we that we have both cultures that we can identify with right and but it takes a long time to feel like you you can identify because I know for the longest time I felt like well I don't really speak the language that well I can't really speak Hindi or Punjabi that well um I I don't really stay connected to like my cultural roots so I don't really find myself that affiliated with the Indian culture but Okay, but I look physically different when I'm here in my Western culture. Um, there's parts of me that yeah, I can't relate because I have very strict conservative brown parents. I can't even like relate to a lot of things with the, with the white culture. So where, where, where do I fall? Where do I sit? Where am I? But I think in the same lens, as I'm saying this a lot, I can, I'm what's helpful for me and i'm sure helpful for all of us is that we're all going through very similar things so one of the ways to break that cycle like we've talked about before is is continue building this community right of whether it's like second generation um south asians or just south asians who's who've been raised in this culture just building that community can you know whether it's listening through podcasts or join or um subscribing or following different pages or reaching out to South Asian therapists, if that's what you want, just continue with building that community and speaking about these issues. I think will be really helpful towards breaking that cycle.
0: So like like we've been saying, like we've been learning these kind of behaviors or like we're learning the fact that like we don't talk about certain topics or we don't, like we don't speak about certain things and we have to like maintain our honor and do all the other things. And so like all these things that we grow up in, that's normalized in our youth then when we kind of take these things these pressures and become adults and I think like as I was talking about how it led her to like seek validation elsewhere but like what kind of um what kind of other ways do you think like the consequences of these these behaviors that we've learned manifest when we're adults because I don't think we recognize them that well <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I don't think we recognize them or able to pinpoint it because it's so normal to us and so part of who we are and how we've been raised that we're we don't always see the pieces in which things were flawed or, or problematic. I should say, but really, these you know standards and expectations and like pressures of holding honor, all of those things that basically. You, it basically becomes this belief system, right? That if I don't meet these standards and expectations that I've now put on myself or my family or my community has set for me, I'm not good enough. I will never be good enough. Or you may have these feelings, you'll never be loved. So you'll never be accepted by others. That can lead to a lot of things, right? If you feel like you're not good enough or that you'll never be good enough, that means that can look look like low self-worth that might look like you might not want to get that job because you're afraid you're going to get rejected or you may you know might not want to pursue those friendships or relationships because that goes against the standards and expectations your parents felt you may also feel like you're a flawed person so that the next person or relationship that you get into you may always have this thing that they're I should feel lucky to be with them because look at me, I have all these flaws or look at me, I'm not good enough or I didn't meet those expectations that have been set on on me. So it's so interesting to me as I'm learning more about um, mental health, how the many ways that these expectations that we feel like we need to meet and when we don't meet them, that how impactful that is in many different ways. It kind of expands just like our friendships, our relationships, our family relationships, our work, our school,
1: it just like encompasses so many different domains. My friend and I have this running joke, and it's an awful joke, but I think it kind of speaks to what you were just saying. Um, whenever you know how sometimes you just meet people, whether it's in the workplace or in a personal setting, and they're just so they're just rimming with confidence. They're just, they're, they're, they're loud, they're sure of themselves. They, they just have no concept of being wrong. And so my friend and I will like, when we meet someone like that, we're like, wow, it's like their parents love them or something. Um, and it's, I don't <laughs> think it's, I, and like, now that we're talking about it, I don't think it's a lack of love, but it's a lack of validation. Their parents validated them growing up, which is why they can just like enter in a room swinging and just be there and be present and be vocal with their beliefs and their ideas versus like people like us who are equally intelligent um, and should take Part in these opportunities equally, kind of sit in the corner with these great ideas or um, or great opportunities and not really take them because we just weren't validated growing up and we fear the kind of same kind of reaction in the in a professional workplace or personal life or whatever.
0: And like that example that you just said is that like like I was just thinking of the fact that because like. We have this expectations that we want to meet. One of the things that I felt myself doing sometimes is like, I'll try to judge other people by the expectations my parents judged me at, right? So they're like, oh, I guess their parents love them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, like, oh, if somebody's acting in a certain way, I'm just like, oh my God, like, why are they doing that? And it makes me a little bit like, like overly critical in the same way that I'm critical of myself. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like that's super negative. Like and sometimes you're just like you can get a little like burst of anger or burst of frustration when people aren't like satisfying this expectations you've now externalized from yourself onto other people.
2: Yeah, I think that's important for you to point that out, that the expectations or standards that we've kind of grown up with and are used to, we we do start to some extent expecting that in other people. And I think for for me personally, I can think of that in like even the partners or like if I if I want to you know, get into a relationship, it's always like, do you meet that criteria or checklist that our families or community has expected for each one, uh, each one of us? Um, and I can just see it there of like, you know, not maybe respecting someone as much if they don't have those standards or feeling like I'm, I'm good and or I'm too good for them, or they're, or they're maybe too good for me. So it's just, it's so interesting to us how it's like, actually then turned into like, how we perceive others. So it's not only are we now focused on ourselves and it's like harmful for ourselves, but it's also like could potentially be harmful for like the people that we want to be around.
0: When we talk about that externalization and bringing it into a relationship and now like the only thing that's coming to my head now is like this is the cycle continuing. Like we bring it into our relationship to bring it into our friendship. We're obviously going to bring it on to our children. And then there's the inter trauma continuing, continuing, continuing. And that's why it's so important for the cycle itself.
2: <laughs> yeah, you got it. You basically just explained and unlocked South Asian
1: culture for us and the troubles of it. So we recognize that we all basically need a lot of help, which is however we choose to seek it. But um Dia and I have talked about this in previous podcasts and in uh, private conversations as well. There's a whole slew of barriers that we face um when we're trying to look for that help, whether those are external or internal. So in your experience, Nancy, like, what are some of these barriers and how can we overcome them?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's the idea that a lot of us feel like we need to suffer in silence. I think that this is changing more and more now. I feel like people are more and more comfortable with the fact of expressing like what they're going through. Um, But I think that could be one of the barriers. Sure, to some extent, people can say that maybe the lack of representation of South Asian people in the in the mental health field may be that we don't really necessarily have a voice that strong yet although it is happening right like there is that that, that understanding of that South Asian culture is its own culture with its own separate sta- set of standards and norms and that mental health needs to be more tailored to that culture it can't just be a one-size-fit-all for, for mental health services and I think in Canada even more so that I think we're we're getting to a point where we're actually starting to specifically now Conduct research on just South Asians or just East Asians or you know just Caribbean the uh Caribbean population, so I think that's also kind of mitigating that barrier too that we're actually now conduct we're now looking into the unique nuances and differences between the different cultures to help us because something like you know this unhealthy standards and expectations just that concept is quite unique to an Eastern culture right not so much found in a western culture. So the whole concept of like individualistic versus collectivistic culture, right? A lot of how we operate is within a community. It's versus this more like my life is based on my needs. It's more of like my life is based on my community needs, those around us and we're all we all take a role in this. So those are a few things I think that are breaking the barrier. I could say that yes, it's it is to some degree easier for us as South Asians to seek other South Asian therapists. So if you find that that might be helpful to ju- to address concerns that may be more culturally specific or attached, that would also be a route to go. That's not to say though, that is absolutely not to say that other people from other cultures can't understand our own. And we're all as therapists willing to learn about different cultures without that judgment. That's a part of our, our clinical skills. Yes, there are benefits to having a South Asian therapist, but you can also seek out other therapists and see, and see if the fit is there and see if you can still feel like your needs are being addressed, your goals are being reached uh, with, a, with someone from a different culture as well.
0: It's so hard to just open that door as a South Asian person into mental health, just because then you're like, oh, I've accepted because like your brain is telling you, oh, I've accepted that I failed. that? did you want to talk about that experience you mentioned for why you chose like a white therapist?
1: I struggled to find a therapist and I think that's actually like a a barrier that all people have, um, of all backgrounds. Not just finding a therapist, but finding a therapist that fits your needs. And it's incredibly taxing to like find a new therapist, tell them your story, realize it's not a good match, and then start all over. And I went through a few therapists. I My therapist actually was is my family doctor right now, who I actually met through work. And she's an absolutely wonderful human being. And she recognized that I was having a hard time finding a therapist. And she just was like, I'm going to take on that role for you. And I think it's been beneficial because living in Canada, she... I think has a good grasp of like different cultures and the challenges they face. So I think she has a decent grasp of like the South Asian culture um, and like the whole like collectivism versus individualistic and some of the unique challenges that women face. Um, But it's also been healthy for me to have an outside perspective, like a perspective outside of the Brown community as to like what maybe is or isn't normal. Um, and she's able to objectively look at something and be like, that isn't healthy or that isn't normal. And I know you've been told your entire life that it's okay, normal, but it isn't. And she, and when she tells me that as a professional, as as someone that I trust, it's easier for me to believe, I think. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. Like, I initially w- was on the hunt for a South Asian therapist, and i if I had found one, I would have been happy to try them. But it just so happened that I started speaking to my doctor. and you're right. She's been, excellent i'm so grateful for her and she really does like have those unique benefits of like having like an outside perspective
2: absolutely so really the take home message in both experiences that there are therapists available to seek help from you know and that whether regardless of the culture the idea is that you find a therapist that you find a good fit and similar to a doctor you know like a general practitioner you you may need to shop around in the sense that you may need to find, you know, if you, you're finding that the alliance or the relationship between you and your and your therapist isn't what you're looking for, you can seek out another one as well. Like it's really just, it's important for me to emphasize that you don't have to stick with the therapist that you've found or that you've been assigned to. And I, and I'm sure it, that I'm speaking with some sense of privilege that there are resources there for you to have different therapists, but now with a lot of services going virtual. I think it's actually increased accessibility to therapy, so it's important to find find those resources if that would be helpful to get through um, whatever that you're dealing with at this time. I would also like to add to with the pandemic, it has made things really tough on everyone, especially for us who have to, for example, live with parents where it may not be the most safe environment to live or that you feel, you know, even feel more isolated or feel like it's hard to talk to them, you know, for whatever reason, it's, you know, just know that it is a tougher time now in in what we're under. So even more important to seek some form of therapy
1: if that's needed. When you do try to talk about mental health sometimes, and if you're maybe speaking to someone that doesn't necessarily have a good understanding of what a mental health issue is, or is still kind of um, working under the pretenses of like, you can just power through, they might lovingly and wanting to be helpful, (laughs) offer some ways that they think you can deal with your mental health issues. So some of the examples that, you know, I've been told is like, you need to pray more, I think like and I have talked about this in other podcasts and we want to get into it more, but it kind of creates this like toxic mentality of that. Like if you're having a hard time, it's because you're not praying enough. So it's kind of your own fault and you're bringing it onto yourself. Um, and then there's also often this idea of like being gaslit, which we talked about because people often like our parents or like feel like they're being attacked. Um, but one specific thing that I've heard as a woman is that the solution might just be to get married. And that kind of leads me into (laughs) um, some of the unique challenges that women face. Because I think obviously like our podcast is called Do a Brown Girl. So we cater to like women, like South Asian women. But we recognize that a lot of things that we talked about today are not specific to women. And this is, these are challenges that South Asian men face too. And I would say that there's in some ways that South Asian men suffer even more in terms of like the taboo because they're men and they have to suffer in silence. Um, So we recognize that. Um, but again, because it, this is such a big topic, we have to kind of like narrow it down a little bit. Um, so, in terms of the whole marriage bit, I don't know, maybe it's just another way of brown people trying to force young people into marriage is like, you know, it'll fix your anxiety and depression. I don't think it ever does. But I think that kind of leads us into the topic of why, like, maybe South Asian women have such a unique set of experiences because not only are we facing unhealthy and unrealistic expectations in our professional life or our academic career. But we also have this other half of our life that we're expected to be running at the same time as brown women. So getting married at the right, quote unquote, age, starting a family at the right, quote unquote, age. um, We often carry the burden of keeping peace in our homes, of maintaining the relationship, of keeping it healthy, and also like running a household. And we see that as like more and more women enter the labor force in professional settings Um, which is a great thing, like if that's what you want to do, it's not changing necessarily at home. While the the financial labor of running a household might be being split, the, the labor that occurs at home is still primarily on women. And this is an issue across the board, I think, but particularly bad in South Asian culture because of gender norms.
2: Yeah, I think that the way that I find people describe marriage is like, oh, you know, you'll be taken care of if you get married. You're, 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 and especially for women, I'm speaking in terms of women, that your, your husbands will take care of you, like that, you know, you'll, you'll find this like peace or, or you'll be happier when you're married. But it, I think what they, what they're trying to say is, okay, be in a relationship where you can find again another dependence on someone. It creates this unequal, like, Power dynamic between men and women, and we feel like we're trapped within this tradition that we have to follow and then of like getting married earlier or you know, getting married, um, like getting married at all. Like, can we like just normalize not getting
1: married? Why oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, seriously, that's right? just like it's like something that they can't even fathom because they're like, I'm sorry, what? No. <laughs> not enough
0: I've had this conversation with my parents they were like that's like step two of life
1: but it's
2: so interesting right because we're talking about this now as if it isn't like and just another like step that we all have to do something that goes through my mind is like when did this ever be a like a requirement like why couldn't this ever be a choice right and I think that's its own topic and I'm sure at another time for me it's it's just let's just normalize women Just living their life, living their life, in, in their own ideals and their own values. <laughs> I know that we're just not ready can, for that. It's I guess, too hard. I just feel like we always have this pressure on marriage, and we're now we're speaking about marriage and what that looks like. But then, what what about the flip side? And just you know, that's also its own its own thing. It kind of continues with this expectation, right? It's like okay, the first thing is your education, then it's your marriage, then it's your kids, and then it's your more kids, and then it's like I don't know, houses, retirement, whatever. Like there's just it never ends for us and I, I think that we need to start kind of shifting this focus of like marriage or marriage being this like save like the savior to us and this like perfect thing. And it's not, it requires a lot of, a lot of time for us to first work on ourselves work on that self-love work on that compassion, work on working on our, um our conceptions of expectations. I think before even just like considering marriage to be, this like thing that's going to solve everything. It's not. We always use this analogy that you have to put, like, if you can think of being on an airplane, right. And the airplane flight attendants always say to put that oxygen mask on yourself before anyone else. Right. That's the same thing that applies to just things. Even that requirement of marriage is, you know, putting the oxygen mask on yourself first. And what that means is like, take care of your mental health and, before you feel like that will be solved by another partner. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Iza, but that's kind of like where my mind goes. is is
1: Why is this a requirement in the first place? You're speaking to my soul, Nancy. <laughs> but if, you're right. It's just like, it's such a big can of worms because this could be like an entire podcast in its own and like our obsession with like the blueprint of life and what a normal life looks like. Like, I, like in the Islamic world, it goes as far as like, like there's this like, hadith that says like when you get married you actually complete half your deen which is like half your religion so like when you don't get married they're like what well, you're ha- walking around half you know half saved you gotta complete that half shit completed. yeah so I mean yeah a whole other can of worms like we could talk about for hours but just another layer that adds on to the stress of trying to keep up of what is expected of us but
2: that's so important because i never heard that before so even as a therapist hearing that like I could imagine even me being inadvertently invalidating to someone who may think marriage is really important to them. If they also find value in religion, they may feel that that is, is needed for them to complete for them this like life goal, right? That's also important too, to even speak out about parts of the religion and how that even intertwines with something like marriage. I didn't even know that.
0: When you're saying like, actually, like like, it's not a requirement, like we don't have to get married and that needs to be an option to put out there. And the fact that it's so normal for us to, like, obsess about it. Like, like clearly none of us are married. And Iza and I, like, we bring it up all the time during the podcast because we, it's top of mind. Because it's a pressure that constantly weighs on us to, like, that we're incomplete until we're married. and And the irony, the irony of that is marriage is more of an emotional burden for women yeah you'll be taken care of like financially which I guess what our parents assume is what they mean but like you're going to be taking care of everybody emotionally so like if you actually are suffering from mental health issues I don't imagine it's going to improve things much
2: no and this yeah and this really does tie back to when we're talking about um, mental health and marriage being a requirement just an expectation that our family has and I can speak for myself as more of a personal antidote that like being highly educated I still don't feel like I'm enough for my family. There's a part of me that even feels a bit shame and, and embarrassment to even say that out loud. That I still don't feel good enough because I'm not married, because I don't have um, kids right now, and I'm I'm I'll reveal my age. I'm, I just turned thirty, so that's like I was thinking of like after you got, like after doing this podcast, I'm like I'm gonna start a podcast on highly educated South Asian women who are thirty <laughs> and not married. Yes, do yes.
1: it. A yes. very specific demographic, but one that needs to start <laughs> hearing their voices. <laughs> very niche, market I
0: love that, and like even seeing you for us is so validating. The experience that like you're doing this PhD and like you're almost done, you've almost crossed that hurdle. To to me, you're like you're somebody that I could like look up to, and the fact that you still feel like you're like incomplete, that you're not doing enough, is it's just it's tragic. It makes me so sad because like like. Like, when you're talking about, like, being 30, like, being 30 and being confident and being well-educated and being helping people, like, helping people and making that your life is an amazing thing that, like, it's unfortunate that our culture, that our, like, that the way that we've been raised makes it so hard for us to even recognize the amazing things that, like, we're accomplishing, right? Like, you are.
2: And that's what we, and that's something that I'm sure we're going to talk about soon today is, is what can we do? What can we say ourselves? That validation... Um, Dia that you were just telling me and how I could then say that to myself and that's something that we that I think is so important going forward in terms of helping us get through these upsets and frustrations and angers that we have and, and sadness and shame that we have for ourselves when we feel like we haven't met those standards what can we then tell ourselves and exactly what you said Dia is something that's so important for me to then tell myself right and I think that's something that we will definitely get into in our conversation around just more um, self-compassion.
0: I think that brings us to it honestly like what like we talk about like how hard it is to get to the point of even getting help and then once you're getting help how hard it is to like find something that works for you and then even I'm sure like even applying those things to your real life when you're not seeing that validation for your experience anyway it's just tough so like I want to talk about this thing that i think you mentioned to us earlier like the idea of like what kinds of tools can we then build for ourselves to 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 validate ourselves to get ourselves outside of these expectations that we've set
2: yeah absolutely i think the first step is really to notice the thoughts and behaviors and the feelings that are associated with more like negative mood, whether it's anxiety, depression, shame, irritability, the first step really is to notice. And one of the ways that we can notice is to do some self-reflection, right? Do some introspection. So I have a few questions that I think are important, but things like understanding like what are your family's expectations and how have they influenced your own standards and expectations on yourself and on other people? So things that we've already talked about today, what are the consequences if you feel like you've you don't reach your standards, right? So what, how, what does that mean about you? What does that mean about how you think of yourself? Um, do you feel like your standards are higher than others? Do you feel like your standards help achieve your goals or get in the way of your goals? So that's also important to understand. And just generally, like what sorts of situations do you find yourself in that trigger these feelings of anxiety or sadness or anger or distress? Um, so really, be more mindful and aware of, and not passively experience and observe these feelings and these thoughts, but being able to notice them, reflect
1: on them, so you can actually
2: do something about it.
1: Does that make sense? Totally. Even after talking to you the first time around, when we were discussing doing the podcast, we Dia and I become became very self aware of how self deprecating we are, and for me, that's my entire sense of humor. Like. <laughs> that's that's the only way I can like crack a joke. And I know a few people around me are like, oh my God, is that? And I'm like, oh my God, it's a joke. But then I'm like, is it? Like <laughs> if I'm making the same joke over and over and over again and my brain's getting that message over again, there's obviously something to it. And I think Dia and I are quite guilty of doing that in the podcast. So even just since talking to you last time, we've tried to be more cognizant of like how we talk to each other and how we talk about ourselves in the podcast because at the whole point of the podcast is to make <laughs> – a positive change. We don't want to just be reinforcing this kind of negative self-talk.
2: Absolutely. So just in terms of adding to that toolkit, obviously with therapy, there'll be more skills to add to your toolbox. But one that's really important for me, and we've already alluded to this, is this area of self-compassion. So I'm curious,
1: what, what is your understanding, guys, of self-compassion? I think sometimes we might not necessarily understand what long-term self-compassion or self-care looks like. So like, yeah, taking a hot bath tonight and eating a McFlurry and pitting my toenails might feel really good tonight. Lighting a scented candle. Exactly. i spent so much money on scented candles trying to fix myself. So it's like, (laughs) so like... Those things are great, and I, they're definitely a boost to like my mental health in that moment. So I think that while we are getting really good at maybe having these little moments of self-care that help us feel good in the moment, I personally struggle with creating behaviors and patterns that are sustainable that are going to help me or help my mental health in the long run.
2: Yeah, that is a really good point where yes, yeah, self care and doing those behaviors like the send a candle and bath time and read like all those things are great. And what we need to add to our toolbox on top of that is how do we really manage those negative thoughts that become more automatic to us. So for example, you know, you're like, writing an email, you notice some spelling mistakes, you send that email, you 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 see the spelling mistakes that you've and then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. Like, oh my gosh, how did I not see that? Like what, so yes, you could take like a bath after to relax, <laughs> which is not, which which is important. And and on top of that, the, the thoughts that you can then tell yourself, right? And so with treating yourself as if you would treat your like best friend who is going through a difficult time or, or um, noticing something that they don't like about themselves, And it's really this concept of instead of ignoring those thoughts or just like letting them pass by, or instead of becoming like overcritical of yourself, it's really being able to stop and say like, yeah, right now you're having a really difficult time. Like right now you feel like this, the second of time you sent that email, you feel stupid. Remembering that everyone goes through the same thing. Everyone has sent emails before, you know, everyone has made mistakes and it's really understanding like how can you just comfort yourself with your thoughts in that moment and where we where we find this resistance in our culture so let's throw it back to our culture why it would be hard for me to even like like explain this concept to my like to my family and my community is that this idea that if you're nice if you're nice to yourself then that you'll become more complacent, right? If you're nice to yourself, you'll become too forgiving. And then what if, you know, you, your standards become lower, right? And that's not what self-compassion is. Self-compassion is really being able to, instead of lowering your standards, let's keep the standards, but go through the motions with more of a less crit, like inner critic, right? Let's go through the motions where there's more validation where it's due, where it's praise, where it's due, where it's encouragement, where it's due, where it's not like you're overly critical of yourself, but every time things don't go well, right? And it's, I really think of it as you become this inner ally instead of an inner enemy. And that's kind of what we're, where we're trying to find ourselves at right now, or we're trying to find ourselves to become. So I think about it as like becoming like sometimes your own cheerleader instead of a drill sergeant, right? Or that's kind of like how I understand self-compassion, but it's that's just one, that's like a avenue or like a, a chapter or concept actually that is important to look into. So one of the things that we could start by doing is like I said, really notice when I'm talking about noticing the thoughts, what we do in therapy is something called a thought record. And what that essentially is, is that you're, writing down the negative thoughts that you're noticing throughout the day and you know you're trying to be as accurate as possible with the thoughts that you have to so record it down and it helps you look at whether there's like a pattern are there are there certain statements that you tell yourself quite often is it coming over and over again what's that tone of the voice in which you're saying that thought is it harsh is it cold is it angry And like make like an active effort to listen to that self-critical voice, right? And then the next step of doing it is how can you restructure that thought that is more balanced or in a more self-compassionate way? So ask, and really what we tell our clients to do is ask yourself, what would you tell your best friend if they, if they told, if you said that thought to them, if you told them that you're feeling stupid right now, because you sent that email, what would they you. And that's one of the ways to help restructure that thought that you might have. You may ask yourself, um, what would I tell them if they told me they were having that same thought? If your friend has gone through a breakup and say like, you know, oh, he dumped me because I'm like, I'm too ugly. I wasn't smart enough. You're not going to be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you were ugly. And you were like, not smart, and he's better off with someone else, you would never say that. But why would you say like, but it's so common for us to think that of ourselves, right? Like, oh, I wasn't good enough. I didn't, I didn't do this, right? I was not smart. So it's really trying to ask yourself, either what you would tell what advice you would give or what statements and compassion you would give to someone who is suffering, and how you could then say those same things to yourself. Because for all of us, and especially South Asian women, for some reason, we're a lot kinder to others than we are to ourselves. We give a lot more compassion to others. We can understand their suffering. We can feel, you know, feel this nurturance and love and attention towards others. But for it's that there's this disconnect towards ourselves. And that's why practicing it is important to do. Like actually actively taking some time to record those thoughts and reframe them. You can visit this website. It's, and we'll add it to the description, but it's called self, selfcompassion.org. And there's all these like meditation exercises. So you can do some self positive affirmation meditation if that's helpful, or it will give you some exercises on how you can reframe your thoughts where it's just more balanced, it's more structured, there's more kindness, there's more forgiveness um, in those thoughts that you then reframe.
0: I was actually, I was thinking of like, while you were talking, like the idea of like, when we say these things that we wouldn't say to other people to ourselves, maybe this is, a, this is like a experience that I've had, like anecdotally, like sometimes when I will like have bad self talk or I say something negative or critical about myself, like I, after a while, like I've realized that like what I'm actually doing is I'm saying to myself what I think my parents would say if they knew. That's
2: really and interesting. And like, it's like the
0: voice in my head is like what, like, it's like my parents' voice. Like it's still my voice, but it's like totally a reflection of what my shame is if they would know and like recognizing that actually like that criticism is something that I'm imagining that they would say to me which is often even unfair because like our parents are not always that critical (laughs) like oftentimes it can be worse in our head than it is in real life and so even recognizing that made me kind of separate like that voice from who I am and it helped a little bit to go like actually like that that voice is not me like I need to then like, like you said, like I need to like say the positive thing to like n- to negate that negative talk and like build that practice.
2: And it's not necessarily always like a positive. thing. It's just more of a balanced approach that, yeah, you need to validate yourself for feeling stupid or feeling sad. You don't want to dismiss the negative emotions. It's validating that you are feeling them. But let's but let's try to put it in a more balanced way that, yes, you're you're feeling negative right now but what else like, but can, is everyone going through the same thing? But is this as a result of what my parents have told me? And it's not really how I feel about myself and I need to forgive myself a bit more. So it's kind of like we, we, one of the um, misconceptions of therapy is that it's this, it's actually this like positive toxicity that we think that therapy is really like, you have to replace all your negative thoughts with positive thoughts. Like that's what therapy is that like, everything needs to be positive and like, um, we try to, like, change your thoughts to be so. And that's not what therapy is. It's just creating more of a flexibility in the way that you think about yourself. Because a lot of us, it's usually just negative, And it's hard for us to think both
1: at the same time. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's a really good totally. point.
1: Now that we've talked about a little bit about, like, how we can be kinder to ourselves and how we can start making that change within ourselves, which is obviously, like, an ongoing thing. What can we do to support each other, and in our like bigger sense, how how can we make a cultural change? Like, how can we shift it into a more positive direction? And this is obviously that's not not something that we can do single handedly or overnight. Um, but what kind of active efforts can we be making? Yeah, I think that's
2: a really good question, and it feels so like loaded too, because it's like yeah, you feel like this is there's this like huge like overwhelming situation that we have in our hands of like trying to change this culture right basically pointing out all the like ways in which it's problematic I think that what you what both of you are doing with having this podcast of like having episodes that are talking about these types of issues is so important that's its own like like advocacy right there right so I think that having Places where people can find a community with, whether it's listening through podcasts, whether it's joining organizations. Like there's a few, there's like one that's called um, like Brown Girl Gang. There's like a, there's quite a few on um, Instagram or like TikTok or, and I think the more you learn about the ways in which our culture can both promote mental health and um, disrupt it or, Impact it negatively. I think the more we can just share that knowledge amongst ourselves, share it to our families, like share it to our friends. I think the more that we're educated and knowledgeable of it, the more that we can, like, just even through our conversations, help others. Those are really the two things that we could at least get started at the moment. I find the most helpful thing, and I think we've, this is kind of like one of our themes of today's talk talk is like I think find that the most that people can understand me and validate me that's like it's and half the battle already there that just to feel understood by others so finally and I think finding those supports in which you can find feel understood is, is important
1: what do you guys think is there like anything else that you would like advise I think one thing that I've been just in terms of like introspection is asking the question like why and that like applies really to anything but anytime I'm having um, a negative self-talk moment or anytime I'm like holding myself to a certain expectation or anytime I'm feeling upset with myself, it's like asking yourself why. Like, why is this expectation coming from? Why, where is this criticism coming from? Why is it affecting me as strongly as it is to kind of just get past the surface level of like, oh, I hate myself. I'm so stupid, whatever, whatever. And like get to a deeper level of like, where is this coming from? Is it actually as big of a deal as I'm making it in my head? Is it actually as, I mean, Is it does it deserve the importance that I'm giving it? um, to kind of like put the problem that we're having in perspective, maybe.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and asking yourself, like, is this thought helpful? Like, is it helpful for me right now? Or is it just going to make me feel worse? That's also important to ask. That also just reminds me like asking yourself, like, is this important in the grand, in the grand scheme of things? Like when you're, when you find yourself like kind of worrying or
1: catastrophizing, um, I think asking yourself that is also important too. like, how much does this really matter? I think one of the most like life-changing moments I had as a very young kid, I was like 12 and had just gotten like a 76 on an exam, which was crushing my (laughs) spirits. 76? What am I? A dropout? (laughs) And I like went up to one of my teachers and was just losing my mind at him. And he's like exhausted. He's like been dealing with kids all day. And he like looked at me and was like, "Is like you got a 76. And I promise you that when you wake up tomorrow morning, the sun will still be shining. The mountains will still be standing. And the earth will still be turning. And he did, and he said it in a very gentle way, but it was like my 12 year old mind was blown. That, like, I guess, (laughs) I guess that's true.
0: I'm imagining you like terrorizing your teacher.
2: (laughs) Such a nightmare.
0: That was an exhilarating conversation. I think like we had a lot of fun and I came to a whole epiphany and as I was like realizing her own (laughs) behavior, it was great. We are so happy that you came to talk to us. This is such an important topic that I think is and I probably couldn't have done justice without your unique and just like, you know, obviously educated insights. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, no problem. Like I, I was more than happy to talk about it. Yeah, I think they're really important topics and yeah, I hope you take some time to just reflect on like what we've what we've all been talking about and, and whether it is to share it with your friends or share it with your family on some of these topics, I think can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, and like on that topic, like we were thinking, if you guys have um, questions for Nancy, about like any like mental health like any kind of experience that you're having or just kind of getting clarity on any of the things that we talked about today feel free to email us at tpgpodcast at (laughs) gmail.com or you can dm us on instagram at underscore dear brown girls we would love to do another session with nancy where we answer a lot of your questions nancy said she's down
1: yeah we asked (laughs) um Nancy, you're obviously like a very busy person, and I think you mentioned earlier that you are going to be defending your thesis in the next little oh, bit. Yeah, in June, end of June. That's so exciting! You. Congratulations, you're so close. So close. So next time we talk to you, we can call you Doctor Ball. Ball. Yeah, yeah I'm <laughs> that's gonna be so exciting. Thank you well, thank so much you for again, having me, guys.